This episode is brought to you by Nexo and Cosmos. Stay tuned for more information about both later in the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest has a voice and persona built for the airwaves. Max Kaiser is an American broadcaster and filmmaker known for hosting the famous Kaiser Report. Max is unabashedly all in on Bitcoin, is not afraid to talk about it to his millions of fans around the world. He's known for his hot takes, humor, and high Bitcoin IQ, so I can't wait to dive into this conversation, find out what he's thinking about the current market, the potential of Bitcoin, and anything else we manage to find our way into discussing. Max, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, hey, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me on. I like the idea that I'm built for media. Yeah, Maybe yeah. I am. Yeah, I, I, I believe you've proven that by now. <laughs> So once again, before we get into the questions, you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, which airs twice a week. I talk to your favorite personalities in the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. This podcast is powered by Blockworks. You can visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. And you can check out everything else I have going on at thewolfofallstreets.io. Now to get into today's episode, Max, I have to ask you, and you know it's coming, what the hell is going on with Elon Musk? <laughs> Well, you know, uh, you, you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. And um, he's unwilling to be changed, right? So he's a narcissist, I guess you could say. And um, he likes to have everything about him. And Bitcoin, of course, is decentralized. There is no leader. And it's... it. Um, it seems to reject narcissists. And we've seen a lot of narcissists fail on the altar of Bitcoins. He had Nassim Taleb, Elon Musk, uh, Paul Krugman over at the New York Times. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, Mark Cuban to a large degree. So they, their egos and their narcissism prevent them from fully embracing Bitcoin. And they, they embrace shitcoins, you know, thinking that this will somehow be the way to go and it's uh doesn't work do you think that he's really embracing doge or do you think that it's a joke to him well i think that uh he he saw michael saylor i got my michael saylor shirt on today That's awesome um and over there at microstrategies really redefine the corporate treasury in in america and around the world and what the corporate treasury is all about and very articulately go on mainstream media and talk about money printing and inflation and the responsibility of a CEO to their shareholders in terms of their cash reserves and why buying back your own stock is probably a bad idea and why buying Bitcoin is an excellent idea. So he immediately became almost a renaissance figure. And then there's Elon, you know, who got a lot of attention for his rockets and his cars and things. And he's, he got jealous and he's like, my God, this guy is stealing some of my spotlight. So how can I steal some of that back? So he goes into this little known joke coin, meme coin, and uh, gets a lot of attention doing it, moves the price around a lot. And I think it's just a function again of his narcissism. I think he's guided by his narcissism mostly is what, what guides him. He, he, he's obviously very smart in terms of his technical prowess and his engineering skills, but it's very uh, narrow intelligence. He doesn't have a broad base intelligence. He doesn't know anything about money or philosophy, anthropology, sociology, uh, technology in the broader sense, history, right? He's, um, he's a geek. 
you know, and a very, very specific type of geek, a self-admitted Asperger's sufferer. So you know that he's on the autism spectrum to some degree. So that brings some baggage to, to the uh, conversation. And um, so now he finds himself hated uh, and a, a, a figure of, of intense hatred, not only from the Bitcoin community, but even from the altcoin community, I, I think is looking at him curiously. Um, corporate America doesn't really like this guy. The SEC has been after him for a long time because allegedly he's been breaking a lot of laws. And I, I liken him a bit to uh, John McAfee, who is another technology guy who decided to get into shit coins. He's now sitting in a prison in Spain. You know, is this where Elon's going to end up? You know, if he keeps going the way he's going, that's, that's where he's going to end up. But don't we think that he's one buy or one tweet again from going back from zero to hero? I mean, the guy's made the trip from hero to zero and back more times than anyone I can recount in this amount of time. But, you know, one more Tesla announcement of buying Bitcoin and he'll be the hero of the community once again. No, I think he lost the community. I look at Jack Mahlers, who's one of the brightest, newest, youngest, sharpest guys out there with InStrike and Zap. And he wrote a very passionate thread on Twitter explaining why essentially he's he's out. You know, he, he's never coming back to Camp Elon ever again. And he feels betrayed. And he's uh, he thinks uh, he called him out and did so in a way that, unlike some of us, myself included, you know, uh, he, what, what we tend to, I can tend to become, you know, somewhat scatological in my tweets and, you know, not not terribly articulate. But nevertheless, with this Jack Mahlers, who's running a company and um, he wrote a brilliantly a brilliant piece. I think he speaks for a generation. So I think Elon lost one or two generations. He lost the millennials. He, he lost the Gen Z's. They're not coming back. Yeah, it does seem like uh, a lot of people are pointing to SNL as sort of peak Elon, Elon Musk, like you could probably chart it like you, like you could Bitcoin. That would be the uh, blow off top for, for him. And I think that it's an apt, uh, apt, apt comparison, but also I do, you know, have my eyes open and think that he could come back with at least the mainstream or that part of the community pretty quickly. If uh, price went up $10,000 because of another Tesla purchase, like it did the first time. Yeah, I mean, you can't rule it out, but I just, I don't, I've seen this before and the people who, excuse me, the people who really uh, disengage in acrimonious ways and they really don't really come back. Um, I can't think of any examples, really. Um, Maybe I I gave it some thought. I can think of an example. I can't think of anyone who's been this overtly stupid and, and then work their way back really. I can't think of an example. I don't think he's going to be the example either. Yeah. Taleb, you mentioned before, he called me an idiot recently, which I thought was a huge compliment and a badge of honor uh, to be in that club. But he was a much more surprising turn, I think, because it seemed that his ethos and beliefs lined up exceptionally well for Bitcoin and that he turned on a dime. Yeah. Once again, uh, it's narcissism. So, um, he is someone who's extremely confident in his intellectual abilities, who goes to Twitter and publicly dresses down other public intellectuals and academics regularly and calls them idiots and things like that publicly and considers himself to be really the intellectual's intellect, that he is really running the show. And um, again, you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. If you're unwilling to change, and a narcissist is unwilling to do so, then you start to go down the path of uh, having Bitcoin derangement syndrome, 
where your inability to change warps you and you become uh, a pariah in the community and a laughingstock. I mean, he wrote the foreword to Saif Adin Amusta's book, The Bitcoin Standard, and yet he doesn't seem to really spend five minutes on the on Bitcoin at all. He doesn't really know anything about it. All, all the arguments from these people are always completely horrible. You know, one of the things Bitcoin suffers from is a lack of credible detractors. You know, we, we need so better true. critics. You know, these critics of Bitcoin are all horrible. They all quote the same FUD from five, six, seven years ago. And, um, you know, none of them make any any good credible points and they all and they all kind of blow up some similarly in similar ways. Yeah, it's always very clearly emotional when it happens. I mean, it's unbelievable. You just look at Peter Schiff, right? <laughs> uh, you know, who's been the greatest bottom signal effectively for every uh, move on, on Bitcoin that we've seen. He, well, he you know, has he, a knack for coming at the bottom because, of a crash. Yeah, you know, he always says, he says that um, Bitcoin is not a store of value, right? So what he's saying is that only, you know, Peter Schiff determines what the market should consider a store of value. Correct. Not the market, right? He's putting himself above the market. He says, I know the market is, is, has determined that Bitcoin is a store of value, but I, Peter Schiff, have not determined that it is a store of value. And therefore I, Peter Schiff, I'm now claiming the market is wrong. So again, narcissism, only a narcissist would come out and publicly say that I'm smarter than the market. Um, and so he's been wrong since a dollar. He's been wrong for 10 years since I told him about it at a dollar, $10, $100, $1,000. He's come back with the exact same argument. I, Peter Schiff, do not deem this worthy of my attention. And so as a result, he's underperformed Bitcoin by 99.9% .9 for 10 years. Every single one of his clients has underperformed Bitcoin. They're all losing money in priced in Bitcoin. And it's a, he's got to be the worst money manager of the past decade. I can't think of a worse money manager with the worst numbers than Peter Schiff. Yeah. And like you said, the, the statement doesn't make much sense if the numbers don't back it. Right? I mean, we have all right. the data in the world to show who's been right and who's been wrong. And the market really does decide. Well, it's amazing where somebody who claims to be a libertarian um, would also claim that the, the market in this case is wrong and that they're right. That's what you, that's what you hear from a statist. Yep. Somebody who's a statist will say, we don't believe price signals are correct. We don't believe market signals are correct. We believe that the state is correct and our ability to control and manage and fix prices and rig prices is correct. So when it comes to Bitcoin, Peter Schiff is a statist. He's essentially a Marxist. But then when he steps out of Bitcoin, he claims to be a libertarian. So again, the, the, one of the traits of a narcissist is this kind of moral flexibility that suits the situation, whatever it is. There is no actual moral grounding. He has no principles. He has no ethics. He just, whatever the situation is, however he can assert that he is at the center of it, he'll, he'll pick and choose from whatever ideology is, that needs to subs add credibility to his claim that only he knows what's going on. And, and as you point out, the numbers have shown that he's been dead wrong for 10 years, but yet he keeps going down this path. So it, it is amazingly fun to watch his son 
attack him on, on Twitter for the exact same things that, that you're saying. But I guess we don't need to spend too much more time on Peter Schiff. Um, I'm curious. You, we talk about, obviously, the idea of a store of value. He obviously believes it's gold. We believe that it's, that it's Bitcoin. What do you, how do you respond to the arguments that the volatility that we're seeing in the market as of now? I mean, people don't know when we're recording, but it's down you know, 35% from the top today. Um, does volatility affect the argument that Bitcoin is a great store of value? I don't really look at the price. I more look more at the hash rate. And the hash rate over the past 10 years has been in a very predictable, solid bull market. And it just reached new all-time highs recently. Mm -hmm. And that's really the nexus of the Bitcoin protocol. Price is uh, not really, it's the least important data point on Bitcoin. The important data points are hash rate, halvings, difficulty adjustment, the emission schedule every 10 minutes. Those are important data points. Price is only reflects on the dollar because you're, when you're pricing Bitcoin in dollars, you're making a comment on the dollar, not Bitcoin. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. That's never changed. But if you price it in dollars and you say, oh, you know, it's, it's a reflection on the volatility of the US dollar because unlike fiat money or gold, Bitcoin is free to trade. So it's trading and it's showing volatility in the dollars. So Bitcoin price down, it, it, we, we see dollar strength. Bitcoin price up, we see dollar weakness. Over the past 10 years, the US dollar is in a hyperinflationary collapse against Bitcoin, punctuated by the occasional strength in the dollar. So whenever the dollar might go up on any given day, and so priced in Bitcoin, you see the price down. But it does. But that's just a reflection of the dollar. It has nothing to do with Bitcoin. The, the Bitcoin's path is toward global Bitcoin adoption, hyper-Bitcoinization. Market cap will be at 10 trillion, 20 trillion, 30 trillion. And that path is set. It's not gonna, there's nothing that can derail it. And any given dollar price on any given day is the, not really important. You make a really interesting point. I've been on the uh, side of the correlation debate as Bitcoin is a beautifully uncorrelated asset from all other asset classes. Um, and that has not been a very popular opinion because occasionally stocks move and Bitcoin seems to move with it. And everybody obviously panics and says that we're just another market. But you did make the argument, obviously, that Bitcoin is inversely correlated to the dollar at times. And that is what we see with metals and stocks to a greater degree as well. Do you think that Bitcoin is completely an uncorrelated asset from these other asset classes in general? And that maybe it's temporary when we do see those movements or it's coincidental? Uh, how do you view Bitcoin with regard to those other assets? Right. I, I would say uncorrelated is, is generally what I think. Um, Bitcoin is on a vector that it's on its own. It's a new asset class. It was the discovery of a new asset class back in the 2009 when it was first kind of dropped on, on the web. And um, the correlation or reverse correlation of the dollar, I, I think, is the only thing really that is interesting because the U.S. dollar is a world reserve currency and Bitcoin is competing to become world reserve currency. So the king right, right now is the U.S. dollar and Bitcoin is attacking the king. So that's, that's where those two come together. And sometimes that, that's the end result is Bitcoin replaces the dollar and uh, replaces fiat money and replaces central banks. So that, that's where it's going. And, um, but it, it is when, on something that's compounding at a rate of 200% a year for 10 years, it's not correlated to anything. Right. 
You know, it's like there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vertical rocket going straight up, you know, and it's going to pass some clouds on the way. Then it'll pass a mountaintop. It'll pass a star. It'll pass get escape the galaxy. It doesn't mean it's correlated to any of those things. It's on its own vector. You know, it's heading on a vector out of this of any, as Michael Saylor would say, uh, all your models are broken, right? There, there are no models suitable to evaluate Bitcoin. I think it's absolutely true. You said that, you know, Bitcoin is attacking the king being the United States dollar, but we all know that it's not the only one attacking the king. And you touched on central banks. We have central bank digital currencies being uh, developed worldwide, especially in China, who is unabashedly said, listen, we want the dollar not to be the reserve currency and our probably best shot at that is a digital yuan. So how do you think that those play into this sort of 3D chess now instead of 2D chess of Bitcoin versus the dollar? Right. Well, the central bank digital currencies are just fiat money, centralized fiat money. So they don't compete with Bitcoin. They compete with other fiat money, centralized fiat money. And uh, what happens is what will happen is that one major country will say, you know what, we're just going to add Bitcoin to our reserves. The same way MicroStrategy added Bitcoin to their balance sheet. One of the major countries, central banks of the world will say, we're going to start adding sure. Bitcoin. And then it'll make all these you know, central bank digital currencies look even worse than they already look. It'll make fiat money look worse than it already looks. And it'll make gold look worse than it already looks. So that's, that, that's, there's, there's no threat from, from um, central bank digital currency because it's just centralized fiat money. It's not different than currently what we have now. We have U.S. dollar is mostly electronic, right? There's very little actual yep. paper floating around. It's all, it's a central bank digital currency. I invented a digital currency back in 1996 that I got a U.S. patent on, 5950176. And it's a virtual uh, currency and it's a virtual trading system and it's also virtual securities. And it was the first patented commercial prediction market. So, I, I mean, I know this whole industry very, very well. And um, I can tell you that a central bank digital currency is nothing, to, it has no, no problems, no threat to Bitcoin. It's worse. I mean, it's a central bank's wet dream, right? It's complete and utter control of the money supply. So, I, I mean, if anything, it should drive more people towards Bitcoin, I would believe. Well, it's going to be easier to do, let's say, MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, or UBI. Right. So in, in the States, you already have basically UBI. People are getting a monthly check from the government and they're not going to apply for jobs because they're getting twice the minimum wage by not working. So that's UBI. So we're already on UBI. So, what, OK, so now we know what, what happens when you do UBI. Oh, you get inflation. And uh, uh, so in other words, for every dollar increase you get in your UBI, you're going to have to pay more than a dollar for that basket of goods at the grocery store. So now you're losing. Again, you're going to lose and lose and lose. You cannot print your way into having a prosperity. I mean, if that were so, then Zimbabwe would be the richest country in the world or Venezuela would be incredibly rich, but they're not. They're incredibly poor because they think they can print money to create wealth. It doesn't work that way. Sorry. Do you think that those countries are a preview of what could happen in the, I guess, quote unquote, first world when we finally see hyperinflation? Because in those places, Bitcoin is actually being put to the test and winning. 
right? I mean, we see hyperinflation and nobody really talks about it, but people are surviving because of Bitcoin and even some other, uh, some other cryptocurrencies. But it's, I mean, it's changing people's lives on a daily basis who don't have access to other money. Right. So as uh, Paul Krugman at the New York Times says, the dollar is backed by men with guns. So the Pentagon, these are the guns that back up the U.S. dollar that eats up something like one and a half trillion dollars of our taxes. Approximately 50 percent of all tax dollars goes to the people with the guns to back the dollar. So what happens is at some point with inflation kicking in, it's going to be impossible to print enough money to keep the Pentagon up and running. So now when you when you don't have the guns to back your paper currency, you, you go into a hyperinflationary collapse. And I think we're going to see that in the next year or two. Um, the, the American empire is just stretched too thin. You know, we got too many military bases in too many countries. We start too many wars. And uh, like it, a lot of empires before us, whether it's the Roman empire or you can name a bunch of empires, you know, it's really hard to maintain an empire. It gets really expensive. And then the value of your money depreciates and then your empire collapses. So the U.S. empire is set to collapse. Um, it's probably good for the millennials and Gen Z because they get to rebuild the country in their, the way they want it. And probably with a Bitcoin standard or should definitely be with a Bitcoin standard. So the millennials will inherit the, the country at some point with a, and using a Bitcoin standard. But do you see a, you know, full on Mad Max dystopian future? I haven't heard that many people say, hey, it's going to happen in a year or two. You know, there's obviously a lot of arguments that uh, it will it will live and breathe for for much longer. But what does the future look like when that happens? And not everybody has Bitcoin. Well, you already see it happening in some cities like Chicago. Um, New York is becoming very violent once again. As when I was living in New York in the 70s, we had uh, 3000 murders a year and that was the high um now it's it's creeping up again i think they're, they're on track to maybe a thousand murders this year and um you have of course the city of san francisco went into complete breakdown seattle collapsed lawless mad max world you already have it in some cities so on on the margins it's already happening and um you had ninety thousand people die from opiate overdose last year that's a death of despair that's caused by money printing. That's right at the doorstep of the central bank. That's Jay Powell, Janet Yellen, effectively killed 90,000 people with their money printing last year. And, you know, they continue to print money. They're going to kill another 100,000, 500,000. Where, where, where will it end? Where, where will the blood shed end for the central banks? At what point, at what point do, they, do they stop murdering Americans? A million? Two million? When's it going to end? Guys, it's time to wake up and go earn some money. One of the most exciting use cases of crypto is both to earn yield and take low interest credit loans, especially since your actual bank is giving you Nathan Nada, nothing in interest. Nexo is leading the charge in this arena with 360 degree crypto banking services. If you're just looking to park your crypto, do nothing, earn some interest, you can make up to 12% a year by doing nothing. If you're in the market for a loan, they have them for as little as 5.9% APR and you don't have to sell any crypto, which we all know, especially in the United States, is a taxable event. Their credit lines are dynamic, which means that the value of your crypto goes up 
So does your available credit. Really cool and innovative and something I've never seen with any other platform before. You can check them out at thewolfofallstreets.link slash Nexo, N-E-X-O, and put your crypto to work for you. Guys, this is so cool. For the first time in history, rather than a company or project sponsoring the podcast and newsletter, a grassroots community is doing it. The Cosmos community is extremely passionate and active, and because of that, cool things like this sponsorship can happen. Their Atom token has been absolutely on fire and solidified itself as a top 50 coin by market cap, and the Cosmos platform has so much in store. Now, if you don't know about them, Cosmos is effectively the port city connecting chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum to ensure your liquidity on any chain can be used anywhere. One of the things I'm most excited about is their new DEX, which is coming out, which will connect to any blockchain. So you can swap ETH, ERC20, BSC, or any other token with Atom plus this DEX will have order books just like any centralized exchange, so it'll feel familiar trading just like you do anywhere that you've traded before. This is a first, it's never existed until now. You need to absolutely check them out at thewolfofallstreets.link slash cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S, and see everything they have going on. Trust me, I'm not an advocate of the central bank. I'm just curious. They're obviously printing because we live in a naturally deflationary world technology is deflationary at some point you know people are not going to have jobs no matter what happens and they're trying to print their way out of that but at this point what could a central bank do in your opinion to to fix this well i I wouldn't agree necessarily with that characterization so the reason they they're not printing money to overcome a deflationary technological world they're printing money to bail out wall street and wall street takes that money that's given to them for free to speculate on more uh, businesses. And as those businesses blow up, they get bailed out some more. That That's why they print money. Um, if you had a Bitcoin standard, you would have uh, a lot more individual sovereignty. You need to have a lot more organic GDP growth based on uh, production and manufacturing and genuine um, growth. Uh, so so that's that's not they're not they're not they're not fulfilling they're not solving a problem by money by printing money they're causing a problem by printing money and the there's only two ways forward as you as you point out as as we know what's happening right now they're printing more money to to keep bailing out the banks that are stealing the money that they are printed Uh, the only other option is to do what paul volcker did back in the 70s and raise interest rates to 20%, and it would force all the crooks like Jamie Dimon and other Wall Street banks would have to go bankrupt immediately. And then that would make room for new banks and new business opportunities and people who are not crooks, you know, to come in and start businesses. So that's, if we're gonna live in a central bank world, then you need to actually use the tools of the central bank the way that they were designed. And right now, and really for the last 15 years the central bank should have been raising rates for 15 years now or or until such time as you weeded out the bad actors you weeded out the crooks you weeded out um the 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 people the banking system that that was hoarding the cash and not lending it out we know that they weren't lending it out because if you look at the money velocity number it's near zero so the fed all the fed has to do is say you know what this money velocity is is trending to zero we need to raise rates to get rid of these banks that are hoarding the cash and refusing to lend it out. 
and that the, okay we'll protect the depositors but those banks have got to go they've got to go you know jamie diamond has got to go he's he's really a terrible terrible impediment to the america's future uh and then let creative destruction kick in let capitalism kick in let price discovery kick in let's let's do it the way america does it we don't want to do it the way venezuela does it we don't want to do it the way argentina does it I, I not not and I, as i understand it i didn't know that that we were aspiring to be new argentina but it looks like that's what we're trying to do yeah i, I guess the fear not of the central bank myself or any human <laughs> is that that transition would be extremely painful but obviously necessary you know that that uh sort of allowing it to to naturally happen sadly both directions now seem like there has to be a lot of pain more printing a lot of yeah, pain well, switching yeah. completely to that other environment a lot of pain yeah it, it's painful one way or the other absolutely um i would agree with that there is no i guess the conclusion here is that there is no pain-free right resolution we're, we're beyond the pale in terms of there's a there's a a solution that is pragmatic and maybe a bit difficult but is going to end up with a sounder economic footing that that's now no longer available you know it, the, the convexity issue in the bond market is now beyond repair uh, in other words uh any in, increase in interest rates by even one tenth of one percent would cause instant death to you know a large percentage of the economy. So there's no there is no pain free way. We're we're now going to have to face the music, as Chuck Prince said it when he was at Citibank during the 2008 crisis, right? And um, in 2008 would have been a great time actually under Barack Obama. Barack Obama could have instead of bailing out the creditors, he could have bailed out the debtors, which is something that's been done for thousands of years. Instead, for the very uniquely maybe the first time ever in a major crisis, he bailed out the creditors. The, the banks that fraudulently made those loans, he gave them, he made them whole and gave them a, you know, 10 times more credit. And then they went and did the exact same thing. So now we're living through the 2008 crisis part two, thanks to Barack Obama, Tim Geithner, Eric Holder, his attorney general. He, he said that banks are above the law. It's called the Holder Doctrine. He said, we can't prosecute banks, even though we find them guilty of fraud, manipulation, malfeasance, we cannot prosecute because they're systemically important to the system of the economy. So, that, so America died in 2008, but we haven't buried it yet. I think in 2021, we may bury it, but it, it's, it's really Barack Obama killed America and Eric Holder, Tim Geithner, uh, Hank Paulson, uh robert rubin maybe wasn't involved so much um, um larry summers right those guys took america out back and put two two caps in the back of the head bang bang dead thanks guys now millennials are gonna have to rebuild it from scratch it's gonna be tough sure but it'll be an adventure right what gets me is that uh we always hear the age-old criticism of bitcoin that it's only for criminals and drug dealers and money laundering and then the exact same banks you're talking about have already been have already been caught doing billions of dollars worth of mon money laundering including jp morgan not that long ago and they pay their fine and move along so why would it even be a criticism if bitcoin was used for money laundering if that's you know par for the course from the actual banks yeah, I think the, the problem that banks have in terms of Bitcoin and money laundering is that it's not good for money laundering. You know, the, the Bitcoin, if you look at all the criminal activity, 
a year ago or so, you could say Bitcoin was involved in something like 1.3% of it. And over the course of the year, it dropped. That number's dropped to less than three quarters of 1%. Because it's actually terrible to use Bitcoin yeah. in criminal activity. Because it's an open ledger that's transparent that law enforcement can see exactly what's going on. So it's actually a bad. So I think when Jamie Dimon criticizes Bitcoin, he's saying, you know, the problem I have Bitcoin is that I can't use it to perform all the criminal activity that is the basis for my enterprise here at JP Morgan. That's why he doesn't like Bitcoin. He much prefers the fiat money world and his cozy relationship with regulators where he can keep 90 cents of every dollar he steals. That's what he's that's what he likes. If you if you want to challenge that system, he's going to not like it. He's not going to like Bitcoin. That That's what he's really saying. That makes sense. So let's assume that this hyperinflationary environment does come to pass in the next year or two. What can we do as, you know, uh, people with a microphone in this market to make sure that as many people get and buy Bitcoin as possible before that happens? Right. Well, the, the sad news is that a lot of people simply won't buy it. And, you know, like the story of Noah and the Ark, they're, they're going to drown. But, you know, here's the thing. Scott, you know, when you're in an airplane and there's a, a sudden problem, they always tell you when the air mask drops, put it on your own face first. And then if you have kids or whatever, try to help your kids. So when, when this thing collapses, you know, you have to make sure that you, Scott and me, Max have enough Bitcoin. And then we may be in a position to help people without Bitcoin. But we're never going to be able to convince people without Bitcoin who don't want to be convinced to get Bitcoin before before the problem. And so we shouldn't really worry about them. We should just worry about getting Bitcoin ourselves and getting as much Bitcoin as we possibly can. And then when it hits the fan, you know, then you're in a position to help somebody. But if you if somebody wasn't doesn't want help, there's nothing you can do. It, it would be a waste of time in Bitcoin to get somebody to try to come to Bitcoin if they're not ready for it. And, they'll, and they never will be ready for it before the dollar goes into a huge collapse. So just keep stacking sats. And then when the thing blows up, you'll be in a position to help somebody. Bill Barhide made a very similar argument when I had him on the show from Abra. He basically said, you know, it's going to obviously be the fortunate few that have it, but then there's going to be a natural trickle down when they actually have to spend it and use it in that future where the dollar is worthless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically, yeah, that's basically saying the same thing. And, um, yeah, that's, 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 that's basically true. I don't, you know, people say that, you know, I'm looking at Bit on Twitter these days and they're like, oh, you toxic maximalists are, you know, turning people off to Bitcoin. And, um, you know, it's, it's not really the way to look at the situation. I think you have to, that would be like saying there's, there's, there's a, somebody shows up and tells a room full of folks that there's a bomb in the other room and it's going to blow up in 20 seconds and we all need to get it out right away. And there's somebody in the audience is saying, why are you such a toxic anti-bomb person? <laughs> like, I'm not a toxic anti-bomb person. I'm telling you, this thing's going to blow up and you need to leave right now. Why are you being so toxic? I haven't finished my chicken salad. Right. I'm like, go ahead. Okay. Stay, <laughs> stay. And, uh, it's been nice knowing you. Yeah. What's interesting is you were way ahead of this. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, I didn't start till 2016. So I'm by no stretch an OG. I got it. I would say late people had told it about me earlier. What attracted you to Bitcoin in the first place? 
and what had you talking about these exact problems a decade ago? Right. As I mentioned, I, I invented a digital currency in 1996. And so it in, in 1996 and through the end of that decade was, of course, the internet boom. And there were a few digital currencies that were emerging on the internet. The one I invented was one of them. And um, so I was aware of a few things. Number number one, I was aware that a digital currency would could be wildly popular because the one I invented was used on the Hollywood Stock Exchange and the Hollywood Stock Exchange became within a year wildly popular. It was the most actively traded exchange in the world. You know, we very quickly scaled up, got had a half a million users or so, which is pretty hard to do in, the, in that internet environment of that time that the internet wasn't really as developed. And um, so I knew that people would have respond to a digital currency in exactly the same way they would respond to any other currency. They, they took that you take possession of it and your, your psychology toward it is exactly the same. You know, people, and there's a lot of examples of gaming currencies like the Linden dollar in second life. And I mean, what there is people who live in these environments and it's a game, it was a gaming environment. Um, there, there, the, the differentiation between the gaming environment and the non-gaming environment disappears. Uh, world of witchcraft, of course. So um, I knew that that was the story. And I also was trying to bring the Hollywood dollar into the real world. You know, we, we maintained a, a fixed exchange rate of a, of a million to one. And so people would come to the Hollywood Stock Exchange and they'd make a few million and then they could go to eBay and we would guarantee that we'd buy back their, their dollars at a, a fixed rate of a million to one. So there was a crossing over into outside of the gaming world. And uh, so then when I was introduced to Bitcoin in 2011, I immediately saw that it could exist already outside of the gaming world. I mean, it could exist in, in the wild. It could, it could compete with the, with the dollar. And as such, you know, it could be huge. And so we started talking about it, started buying it. Uh, I started investing in Bitcoin startups in 2013. So I have really the first Bitcoin dedicated venture capital fund, Heisenberg Capital, that we started in 2013, which is uh, an actual fund. I, I know Roger Ver says he made the first venture capital investments, which as an individual, I guess he did. But uh, right around the same time, we created an actual VC fund called Heisenberg Capital, and we invested in uh, BitPay and Kraken and uh, Shapeshift and Bitso, which has now just got a huge value. So uh, Kraken's worth probably 10, $15 billion now. I think initially it was worth $5 million. And I had worked on Wall Street for many years, so I knew the finance side of the business. And um, it's also, I recognize Bitcoin as a new asset class. So having been a Wall Street professional for many years, you know, the, my first question was, what is this? Is it a stock? Is it a bond? Is it a currency? Is it a commodity? And then I realized that it's really none of those and it's all of those. So it's, it's a new, it's a brand new asset class. And then you look at the world of money management and the money management world is one where money managers have a fiduciary responsibility to own assets. And they have to own, for example, pension funds have to own certain treasury bonds and they have to have certain yield instruments. And, and so as a fiduciary responsibility, at some point there's gonna be a requirement for institutions and corporations and endowments to own Bitcoin. Um, so therefore, 
the total addressable market is a hundred trillion dollars. So at that time, the total market cap of Bitcoin was 20 million. So, um, you're figuring, well, 20 million into the hundred trillion, the, the price can only go up from here. I would, I would think, um, so that's started my journey. It makes sense. You talk about pension funds, obviously endowments, that's sort of the huge wall of money. You were thinking about it 10 years ago. Um, I think they're on the cusp now of being here. Do you think that they'll gain exposure to the underlying asset? They'll actually buy Bitcoin or do you think that the ETF will be the tool that they'll use for exposure? Mm, well, there's no reason why they can't own the big Bitcoin underneath uh, because you have not a lot of custodial services or you'll have insurance products. So you'll have various ways to, to allow for that to happen. It, it's a bit tricky. I, I guess, uh, in Wyoming, Caitlin Long has done incredible work in dealing with this issue about how institutions can effectively take possession of keys, but, but still maintain their responsibilities, fiduciary responsibilities. So there's a lot of work being done to allow for that to happen. And Wyoming is an interesting case. I mean, in, in the United States, of course, the question is, well, what if the country bans it? Well, what we're seeing on the state level is the opposite. Wyoming is now becoming a Bitcoin state and they want to, and, and they're not, it, it's similar to what happened in the marijuana laws, right? So mar the marijuana is illegal on the federal level, but on various states it's legal. And the more states be, it becomes legal and then eventually the federal law will change. We'll have a, a pro, you know, marijuana federal law will come into, into place. I think with Bitcoin, similarly, you got Wyoming now, uh, city of Miami, potentially the state of Florida would become a Bitcoin friendly state, uh, Texas, Bitcoin friendly. So at then some point the momentum is, well, then we're just on the federal level. We're going to make Bitcoin, you know, open it up and, and countries should do that because what I call the global hash war, you know, if the U S doesn't start to hoard and mine Bitcoin for itself as a sovereign entity, it's going to really be left behind because these other countries potentially could overtake it and become much better off having Bitcoin on their balance sheet. It could be China, Russia, Iran, for three, three examples of countries that could end up putting Bitcoin on their strategic reserves and then having really strong currencies and really putting even more pressure on the dollar. I think the U.S. really is uh, taking enormous risks by weaponizing the U.S. dollar and using it to sanction countries the way that they do, because now these countries are saying, well, you know what, maybe we'll just uh, forsake the dollar and develop our own swift global payments network, and we'll start hoarding Bitcoin, and then we'll see where that goes. Last time I talked to Caitlin Long, I made the exact same argument. I said it reminded me so much of the marijuana industry when you would hear about, you know, states opening it, but people couldn't uh, deposit their money. So they'd be driving around, you know, armored vehicles with cash because they were afraid to put the money into a federal bank, not knowing what might happen. So like with that in mind and how we've seen that evolve, do you still think that the United States regulators or the government is a major threat to Bitcoin or that there are other existential or real threats that could that could stop this thing right on, on this on the state level i think that it's more likely that they capitulate and they realize that they need they need to own bitcoin or they have faced an existential threat again you don't change bitcoin bitcoin changes you so the u.s needs to get right with satoshi or it's going to find itself really in a dire situation in the global economy and i think that enough we got uh, cynthia uh, lummis who's in um, 
Wyoming as well, right? Mm -hmm. So she's in the Senate and she's an active voice for Bitcoin, pro Bitcoin. She understands it deeply. She's going to be at the, she's a key speaker at the Miami event coming up on June 4th. And um, so I think saner, I think so. I think, I think the momentum of the founding documents of the country, the Constitution, Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, there's still enough of that in the minds of, of, of Washington to, to realize that that's who we are. Yeah, I, I don't want to, I'm not cynical to the degree that I believe that we're going to just go become Marxist without any fight whatsoever. I, I think there's enough, you know, um, intellectual capacity and, and, and go forward gung, gung ho, you know, in, in by these, these true Americans who understand why America works that we'll we'll get there we'll get to the we'll get to bitcoin i, I that's I, I have to be optimistic about that caitlin also had an incredible thread over the last couple of days about the uh tether i don't know if you if you read it but talking about yeah. the backing of tether because they finally obviously came out and said what they were backed by and while everybody seems to be concerned with elon musk and and that narrative it seems she was very concerned with tether being backed by cash equivalents <laughs> rather rather than cash and maybe that they weren't the, the highest quality do you think that there's any threat as a result of that behavior by tether no um yeah well first of all caitlin long is probably the most accredited financial background person in bitcoin like By she far. is a ninja warrior Incredible. in terms of her credentials her wall street credentials it's really no one even comes close i mean michael saylor is good on the tech side and he's a smart guy but she's actually she's like level one ninja warrior in terms of her background <laughs> and what she where she comes from and how she she she's incredibly bright and skilled and Incredible. But but I think that the, uh, the the tether story. Remember, the tether story is coming from a place of of a of a black box where nobody knew anything, and it was absolutely unknown. They couldn't find an auditor, and um, you know I've been around for ten years and I've seen so much happen, and I've seen so much like the Mount Gox situation is a pretty big you know moment in Bitcoin history, where you know, you're dealing for so many years or um, BitMEX, you know, um, Arthur Hayes's exchange, you know, the, um, the, the, what was going on there for so long was really un, unacceptable, right? So, so you, you, we're in a phase now where people are, we're, we're becoming more professional. So, the, so Tether is now, open the kimono a bit, so to speak, and it shows what the reserves are. And okay, they're not great, but it's, you know, from my perspective, we're still moving forward. You know, I agree. It, even two years ago, it, it could have been hamster shit on their balance sheet. We, we wouldn't have any idea. At least now we kind of have an idea what's going on and they're positioned to improve those reserves and they're in a position to move. And uh, I think it destroys a lot of the FUD coming from people like Nouriel Rabini, who's, or, or um, Jim Rickards, who always just says, tether, 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 you know, and now we know ex more sp specifically what's going on there. And um, I mean, to Caitlin's point, I mean, she's saying, look, the, the mark to market this reserve and you apply it to institutions that own this asset. And now they've got to adjust for this risk, which means right. they've got to, you know, 
impair their position, you know, or offset it in some way, maybe, you know, marry it with some AAA rated treasury bonds or something, you know, they've got yeah. to act, they've got to take, they got to, they got to move on, on this information. Okay. Uh, she's right. Yeah, they do. Um, but is it, is it, um, uh, some kind of, uh, existential threat? No, I, I see it the opposite. I see it as the path toward more, um, visibility on, on, on what's been happening in, in these dark corners. I mean, the, yeah. the whole Bitcoin industry emerged from the shadows, you know, going all the way back to, uh, the Silk Road days, right? I mean, we, it was literally, um, underground black market stuff. And now you've got the endowment of Harvard, Yale and Princeton looking at it, yep. black racks looking at it, you know, it's come a long way. So this is part of the journey. Mark Yusko said basically the same thing last I spoke to him. He said, you know, listen, I've always been a joke that I'm always on the side of the bad guys, because if you're in emerging tech of any sort, that's where it always starts, you know, internet, porn, Bitcoin, drug dealers, whatever it is, that's just how these things generally evolve. It's not a, it's not a point against, it's just like you said, a natural part in the evolution. And now we're seeing those things come out of the shadows and become, you know, clean. Yeah, the, the marginal players in society would embrace new technology. So, you know, payment systems in the early days were, were used by, um, you know, sex workers or porn sites, et cetera. Uh, as you point out, this is the story of technology. So going back to the VCR days, you know, VCR cassettes, you know, it was a lot of porn, porn industry was the first to get into VCRs. The streaming business now, I think uh, Pornhub is uh, certainly dominates in that industry. And as a result, costs for bandwidth are cheaper for everybody. Sure. Uh, I mean, if you go back all the way back to, I think the Bible starts with a sex scene, isn't it? Adam and Eve, isn't it a metaphor for they had sex and isn't that what, isn't that just a ruse to sell more Bibles? So it's, uh, it's always been used to uh, get your product out there. And then uh, it has other applications. It's interesting. The tether sort of evolution that you discussed reminds me a lot of what we're seeing in the ridiculous Bitcoin energy debate. Um, yeah. You know, that it sort of started in the coal mines and dirty energy, but now obviously anyone who has looked into it for more than five seconds knows that it's, you know, leftover energy primarily being used and a switch towards renewables. So basically, as the asset has evolved, serious people have taken a look at the energy problem and it's something that's being fixed. So do you think that there is any sort of electricity or energy problem with Bitcoin do you, that's on its way in the right direction? Or do you think that it's complete FUD and it's not an issue at all? Here's my take. Um, and I, I think it's, I think I'm the only one that's really taking it this with this take. You know, I think Bitcoin would cut the 160,000 terawatt hours of energy used right now on earth by half. Because under a Bitcoin standard, you get rid of central banks, you get rid of fiat money, you get rid of the Pentagon, right? So these are all huge users of energy. Under a Bitcoin standard, energy use on planet earth gets cut in half. So it's, it's, it's the, not only the greenest industry, but it's, it's an imperative that we go on a Bitcoin standard because that's the quickest way to cut carbon emissions by 50% on planet earth is to go on to a Bitcoin standard. And, um, that that's my take. I mean, if you want to look at it more generally, yeah. I mean, the Bitcoin energy usage is in, is 
30% renewables or higher, and it tends to get to toward more renewables. Um, the, the current um, energy footprint of Bitcoin is um, 150 terawatt hours versus 160,000. So it's, it's about one-tenth of 1% 1 of global energy goes into Bitcoin at the moment. Right. Um, so, but I think that we can cut global energy usage in half if we go to a Bitcoin standard. So that's, that's a message that needs to get out there to the progressives out there who are concerned about the environment as they rightfully should. They should embrace Bitcoin immediately to cut carbon emissions in half on planet earth. Do you think that there's a chance that we'll see a premium for green Bitcoin that's been proven mined, you know, with renewables or with a lower carbon footprint? No. No, I don't. Um, it's um, because the bigger, larger issue of how Bitcoin cuts global emissions potentially by half by simply going to a Bitcoin standard, that narrative will take precedence. So no one's going to, they're going to be like, well, this, this particular uh, coin is traveling through this particular wallet at this particular time. We can spend some energy looking at that, or we can just go to a Bitcoin standard and cut all emissions by half. That makes sense. Is there anything that could shake your conviction in Bitcoin? I know we've already talked about it before. It's certainly not price. Is there anything that could change your mind? No, I, I think that, you know, the thing is that humans could become extinct and Bitcoin is still going to keep going. <laughs> so true. So it's, it's up to us to embrace Bitcoin before we kill ourselves as a species. Before Bitcoin, it was, I would say the timeline for human extinction was maybe 50 years. Now with Bitcoin in the, in the, now in the mix, we have a chance to live and survive and in as humans, uh, if we don't try to change Bitcoin, but let Bitcoin change us. If we allow that to happen, then we're going to survive as a species. If we don't, then we'll become extinct. And, you know, Bitcoin will still be hashing. It'll still be grabbing energy from the sun. The difficulty adjustment will find the sweet spot where it keeps going and it'll just keep going, you know, and, but nobody, no humans will be around to experience it. That makes sense. Um, I love the Michael Saylor shirt, which we touched on before. Um, you know, he's sort of definitely set a high bar for institutional adoption, right? I mean, the guy is as all in as you can imagine with a corporation raising debt, you know, a billion dollars worth of debt more than once. Um, do you think that that's a path we can expect to see from other corporations? Or do you think that we'll get a whole lot more Elon Musk's who some, somewhat view it as you know, a, a treasury asset, but also a profitable asset and maybe one that they'd be willing to part with if the situation arose. Well, the, um, you know, with, with, with Elon Musk, first of all, his stock was outperforming Bitcoin. So he's kind of in a unique situation. Tesla stock has been a skyrocket. So that gives him an interesting position in corporate America, probably unique in that respect, in that his actual underlying company stock was outperforming this asset that's been compounding at 200% a year. So I think he's really an anomaly and you can't really use him as a benchmark. So then, okay, let's look at the market as a whole. You have um, the problem as Michael Saylor articulates it is one of loss of purchasing power on your cash reserves. 
which he estimates to be approximately 15% a year due to the M M1 money supply, right. other money supply, money printing, expanding at approximately 15% a year or more. So a couple of things. First of all, what's the main competitor to Bitcoin in corporate America? It's borrowing money to buy back your own stock. That's how executives make money in America today. They don't manufacture, they don't produce, they don't hire people and give them living wages. They borrow from the Fed at 0% and buy back their own stock. And so their executive stock options go from a dollar to $20. So their compensation is, is 50, 60, 70 million or 100 million or $200 million. So that's how they engineer that by gaming the system, by gaming the central bank. And the central bank is in on the con because they claim that there's no inflation. So we can't raise interest rates, even though it's provable and demonstrable that there is a lots of inflation and they should be raising interest rates, but because they are in working together with these corporations and banks to keep rates low, they must say that there's no inflation, or in fact, they even say there's deflation. So, um, Michael Saylor called time on this. He called them out. He said, wait a minute, I could borrow money to buy back my own stock, but I think that these central banks are printing us into ruination. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that borrowed money. I'm going to take the cash in my balance sheet and I'm going to borrow at less than 1%. And I'm going to buy this asset that is a bulwark against the inflation. It's going to go up. It's already, it's moving up 200% a year, but at a minimum, it's going to outperform inflation by a substantial margin. And so then that is something that every CFO in the country and in the world now cannot ignore because otherwise they open themselves up to shareholder, shareholder lawsuits. So he's thrown down the gauntlet and now every CFO and every CEO and, and, and every board member of every public company now has to take that on board by law. It's not something they can decide not to do. They have a legal responsibility. So, and, and then when you put pencil to paper and you work through the math, uh, they're going to say, wait a minute, you know, this is actually true. Um, we should actually be doing this or we're going to be sued out of existence by our shareholders. So, um, they of course would like to delay making that choice for as long as they can, because, um, it's, it's a change of thinking and people are resistance resistant to change. So that's why you see a lot of uh, propaganda. So mainstream media, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, you know, MSNBC, CNN, the, the, the BBC, there's a lot of uh, propaganda. There's a lot of FUD out there about Bitcoin and the environment. But that's completely false. It's pure propaganda. Bitcoin and dirty and, and the use in uh, illicit activity, that's completely provably false. Uh, you know, but this is, they're very used to getting their way with propaganda. Remember the Iraq war was, uh, was sold on this idea of weapons of mass destruction Just and uh, you know, a little vial of talcum powder, you know, shaken at the UN and saying, look, this is uh, really deadly stuff I'm holding here. You know, I just poured it out of my Johnson and Johnson cage. baby powder, but yeah. trust me, it's, it's really, really dangerous, you know? And so we, so propaganda 
really is impactful these days because of the control of media by just a very, very few players. And those few players are beholden to the money printers. So um, it's, it's tough for corporations to go against it. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's what the, the whole uh, Elon Musk on Saturday Night Live was about. You know, Mike, Lauren Michaels, who's the producer, he's very tight obviously with Comcast and Comcast is a major corporate conglomerate and monopolist in America and NBC News and MSNBC News that they own are major propaganda players. And you know, here's a guy who we think will dis distract attention from Bitcoin, which we see as an existential threat. So let's put him, let's put this guy who's awkward, let's put it that way, in front of millions of people talking about a shitcoin. And, you know, we may, we'll buy some time, you know, maybe we'll buy some time and, but time's up. Um, you know, if you read, you know, Jack Mahler's thread or some of these other threads, you, you realize time is up there. They've run out of, uh, they, they're, they're reaching into the trick bag and they're finding nothing in the trick bag. They're, they've run out of tricks. So when, when corporate America really runs out of room to finagle and to escape the Bitcoin reality, you know, they've got to, they've got to make the move. They've got to make the move. So, um, I, I think it happens in 2021. So my price target for 2021 is still $220,000 per Bitcoin. Um, it's, it's an aggressive price target, but I, I think, think so. it's, it's based on us dollar running into severe trouble and institutions realizing that inflation is in fact, not transitory. It's secular, it's structural It's here for the long haul. And if you're not protecting yourself, you're going to be wiped out. And as Paul Tudor Jones said about Bitcoin, it's the fastest horse in the race when he's talking, comparing it to gold, for example. And, and so you get this wave, a, a tsunami of cash comes back into Bitcoin. Actually, my team took all of the wild predictions about six months ago from, you know, 3000 up to a million for the cycle top. Because, you know, obviously the individuals generally are pretty bad at making predictions, but groups, when you average them out, do very well. And it was about $235,000 was the average. Really? So I, I don't, yeah. I, so I don't find that to be actually that aggressive. I think that that's probably, um, you know, if you believe in the parable of the ox and that uh, people, you know, all make a guess together that uh, they'll come close, that's right where it lands. The wisdom of crowds. That's right. And then not, not of individuals. I know we're up against it here um, with, with time. Any parting thoughts, anything else you'd like to leave us with? No. <laughs> Good. Perfect. <laughs> well, we did well to end it that way. So where can everybody keep up with you and follow you after this? Well, our YouTube channel, Orange Pill, that's uh, youtube.com forward slash Orange Pill is really becoming super popular. Max and Stacy, we do two shows a week. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Then we have our Telegram group, t.me forward slash orange pill, which has about 24,000 people in it. They're all maximalists. <laughs> then uh, we have uh, our Twitter accounts, Max Kaiser or Stacy Herbert. And, uh, but I think the orange pill YouTube channel is really something people get a lot of enjoyment at. So we release one every Sunday morning and People really, you know, kick back and watch the show because it's informative. Plus, it's funny. You know, I do a lot of crazy stuff just to keep keep the pace going. And and um, you know, it's it's a fun fun time. Fun time for everyone, Scott. Bring the whole family. Hey, I'm one of those people. 
that watches it. So, so I, I can I can attest to the fact that it's very entertaining and also informative. So I appreciate that. Although I haven't brought my six year old and two year old yet. Oh right, right, right. Well, <laughs> we have a. I mean, like Jack Mahler was watching Kaiser Report when he was um, like twelve years old. Yeah. So we, uh, we we literally have educated a whole generation of Bitcoiners over the years. Well, I hope my kids are of the next next generation. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really do uh, appreciate it, and I, and I hope that everybody gets tremendous value from it. All right, Scott. Thanks. Thank you. Let's go.